1: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino, the, the big, big dinosaur, dinosaur podcast, podcast, where we cover news, interviews and discussions of all things dinosaur.
0: Hello and welcome to I Know Dino. I'm Garrett. And I'm Sabrina. And today we'll be talking about Leel and and a bunch of dinosaur news. As always, we want to give a big thank you to all of our patrons who've gone to Patreon.com and pledged their support. If you're interested in supporting the podcast and you like what we're doing, please go to patreon.com/inoDino and check out our video and the rewards that we offer. So, jumping straight into the news, our first article is titled Mass Spectrometry and Antibody-Based Characterization of Blood Vessels from Brachylophosaurus canadensis. Ooh. Yeah. So, it was published in the Journal of Proteome Research, and it's behind a paywall, so I got a lot of this information from other sources that reported a little bit here and there. It was written by Timothy P. Cleland and others. And basically, because you might not have been able to tell from the title what they're talking about, in 2007, some researchers in Montana found a brachylophosaurus And they've been working on it since then. First, they recovered some soft tissue by demineralizing the bone. And we talked about demineralizing bone a little bit before. And I think they did it the same way here. And the way that we talked about before is basically you put the bone in acid and you dissolve the bone away and then you're just left with some soft tissue afterwards. So... When they got their soft tissue, they looked at it and they figured that it was probably a blood vessel, actually kind of like a little web of blood vessels. But they recognized that it could have been a few other things. One of those things was a biofilm and basically what that would be is some other kind of organic material that coated internal parts of a bone. So. They said it could have been like bacteria or a fungus or who knows what, because the bone is millions of years old. So anything could have happened to that bone in that period of time. Or it could have even been part of the dinosaur that kind of decomposed and then redistributed within the bone. Kind of gross, but it was a possibility. So they wanted to prove that it was most likely a blood vessel. It was in the places where you'd expect to see a blood vessel, but you couldn't be sure if it was a real blood vessel or not the structure was preserved well enough that they were able to conduct what's called peptide sequencing. And it's a lot like DNA sequencing if you think about you're taking a little piece of a protein and then you're figuring out just what that protein is and what it does and what the series of, in this case, peptides are. And that tells you what the exact protein is. So They talk about like genetic code, you're basically looking for the code of this soft tissue so that you can decide what it actually was when it was alive. Luckily it was preserved well enough they could actually do this, which surprised everybody when this was first done on other materials a while ago. And the peptide sequence was consistent with some extant archosaurians and that came from the abstract. I'm not sure exactly which species they chose, but you probably remember archosaurs are the common ancestor of living birds and crocodiles, and there isn't really anything else that's around right now that has that same lineage with dinosaurs. So it was, I'm sure, one or the other, maybe both. So when they looked at it, they found that, yes, it did look like it was the same sequence, but they wanted to be sure. So they used another technique that was in the title as antibody-based characterization (laughs) And what that is, is you get some antibodies that are specific to the proteins that you think you have, and then you see if they attach to it. The typical analogy is antibodies are kind of like a key in a lock. So you make the key to fit the lock, or in this case, you guess at what the key needs to be to fit the lock, and then you see if it fits, and then you know if you have the right thing. Elena Schroeder, who was one of the authors on the paper, said, quote, As we uncover more and more sequences from ancient specimens, we might be able to use the similarities and differences in those sequences to hypothesize about how closely related different species of extinct animals are. End quote. And I think that's really fascinating because right now we basically just guess based on whether they look the same and specifically whether their bones look alike. So it's nice to have a little bit of genetic information to work with Since that's how we do everything with living animals, we do it all based on whether they can mate and numbers of chromosomes and DNA and stuff like that. We don't pick up bones and see how much they look alike. So it would be cool to get some more information that way. Cleland also said that, quote, we don't even know what kind of questions we can ask now. End quote. And I think that's a really good point because until recently we didn't think that there would be any soft tissue that was preserved. Who knows what else could be in these fossils? And we'll have to look around and see. So I'm really excited to see what other stuff comes out in the future. Thanks to our listener, Philip, for emailing us this article. It was on the website 538, and it references two articles by Michael Benton who has written about error rates in dinosaur species identification. So, according to the article, Benton estimates that 48% of dinosaurs named between 1850 and 1980 have been invalidated. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot more than I thought would have been invalidated. And that's compared to 20% of living species that have been invalidated, which also seems super high. I guess... They're not obvious things like someone tried to rename a dog. It's probably a lot of bacteria and things like that that are a lot harder to tell because all the low-hanging fruit for species has already been discovered. But it still seems like 20% is a lot when you have living species. Mm -hmm. The article I could get into the best because it was in open access is titled Fossil Quality and Naming Dinosaurs. It was published in Biology Letters back in 2008 So all the absolute numbers I'm about to say are definitely wrong because it's been eight years, but the relative numbers should be about the same because it spans the period before 2008 all the way back to when dinosaurs were discovered. So Benton said, quote, of the 726 currently invalid dinosaurian species, 582 or 80.2% were based on isolated teeth and bones whereas 247 of the 675 currently valid dinosaur species, or about 36.6%, were based on such limited materials, end quote. So basically he's saying if you base a species on a single bone or tooth or whatever you can find, it probably has a higher chance of being invalidated later than if you can find more bones Or more material about the dinosaur. And he also added that, quote, as the use of incomplete specimens declines, past performance suggests that dinosaurian systematists ought to be establishing a higher proportion of valid species now than they did in the past, end quote. So apparently, paleontologists have figured out that it's not a great idea to name a species based on a single tooth or something like that. So it's not happening as much as it used to. In 2006, he also created a table of all the paleontologists who've named at least 10 dinosaur species and at the time there were 30, 30 paleontologists that is. Most of the contemporary paleontologists have a perfect or near perfect record because there hasn't been enough time for people to find more material or invalidate their findings for other reasons. And Benton does think that they'll have better records than previous fossil hunters but not necessarily 100% or 90% like a lot of them are at right now. My favorite part about that list, though, is that he's got all 30 paleontologists who've discovered more than 10 dinosaur species. So Othniel Charles Marsh is on there and so is Edward Drinker Cope. And Marsh named 80 species and 23 are considered valid, according to that article, giving him a success rate of 28.8%. But on the other hand, Cope named only 64 species, so he didn't get as many overall. And he only had nine that are still considered valid, so he only had a 14.1% success rate.
1: So Marsh won the Bone Wars?
0: Yeah, that's what it looks like. (laughs) He discovered more overall, and he had more than twice as many are still considered valid. Nine is not that good. There are a lot of other paleontologists who found more than nine. There's probably a dozen of them, but not very many people have found 23. That's a huge number or 80, (laughs) depending on which
1: number you want to use. Well, he had help.
0: Yeah, that's true. Most of these paleontologists do, though. It's interesting to me that Benton talks about species instead of talking about genera, because we usually talk about genera. And the reason we talk about genera is it's usually difficult to tell whether dinosaurs would be classified in the same genus as another species. So typically a dinosaur is given its own genus and there aren't other species in the same genus. There are a few exceptions, actually. There are a lot of exceptions, but most of them have their own genus. So a lot of these diversity things that we talk about talk about how many genera there are. I guess if you're talking about naming though, you get to name every species, so maybe that's why.
1: Yes. As Jack Horner said in one of his talks, paleontologists like to name dinosaurs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: So if you can split a genus up into three species, then you get to name three times as many things.
1: hmm Next up, thank you, David, who shared this via Facebook. Nangag posted some pictures of a vertical wall, and according to one commentator, it's Cretaceous Park in Bolivia, that has dinosaur footprints. Apparently, tectonic activity pushed a shoreline vertical... I mean, the pictures are great, but the best part of the comments. Here's a couple. One person said, quote, this is clear scientific proof that dinosaurs could walk on walls. And another person said, quote, they were bitten by a radioactive spider. It is proven. <laughs> on April 1st, the Mill Canyon Dinosaur Trackside Trail had its grand opening the trail has over 200 dinosaur tracks, eight types of tracks, and six types of dinosaurs. And the site was found in 2009, and researchers have been uncovering and studying the tracks since 2013. They found evidence of herbivorous and carnivorous dinosaurs, including a relative of Utah raptor. And paleontologists were at the opening ceremony to answer questions.
0: Yeah, I think we talked about that site before and all the different tracks that are there, so it's cool that now the public can go check it out.
1: Yeah, wonder if they pulled any pranks. April Fool's Day.
0: Oh, yeah. (laughs) There's another article on Forbes by Shana Montanari that we always like to read. This one's titled, The Four Coolest Things Paleontologists Have Discovered About Dinosaur Eggs. The first item is that dinosaurs sat on nests just like birds. Specifically, she talks about the nest called Big Mama, (laughs) which was found in the Gobi Desert by the American Museum of Natural History and showed an oviraptor called Potty covering its nest. She also points to a new study where researchers looked at porosity of eggs and nest structure and determined that Trudon probably sat on its eggs as well. It's definitely a good way to talk to non-dinosaur enthusiasts about how we know they're birds
1: <laughs>
0: similarities like that.
1: That reminds me, the other night Garrett was speaking at an event about dinosaurs and a woman came up and asked questions afterwards about nests and eggs and specifically if T-Rex males sat on eggs.
0: Yeah. I'm not sure where the idea that the males would do it came from. That was pretty interesting.
1: It was. And it seems like it's a big deal to even know that dinosaurs sat on their eggs at all. (laughs) (laughs) Yep.
0: The second coolest thing in the article is we can sometimes find dinosaur embryos in eggs, and we have found Torvosaurus, a sauropodomorph, and one of those city potties. Also, we've been using CT imaging lately to look at the arrangement of bones before we even open a fossilized egg, and Shana points to an article that we talked about last year where they determined that an embryo was likely of a bird and not a non-avian dinosaur by looking at the arrangement of the bones and how long different bones were and stuff like that. The third coolest thing is that dinosaur eggs were colorful. And she talks about an article that's actually in preprint in Pure J that we haven't talked about yet where they're looking for preserved eggshell pigments. And it's a lot like figuring out the color of fossilized feathers that we talked about in the past, where you have to correlate relative chemistry of these fossilized eggs to living bird eggs, then you kind of guess. It's really hard to prove, but you can get a pretty educated guess about what color it would have been. The fourth coolest thing in the list is that the eggs themselves can preserve information about their environment. And we've talked a little bit about this, too, where we can get information by looking at the carbon and oxygen isotopes in the calcium in the shell. And she discusses her own study where she showed that the Gobi Desert was dry 80 million years ago, just like it is right now. And she also points out that they have helped to show what dinosaurs' body temperature was by looking at some of these details, too. It helps with the whole dinosaurs aren't cold-blooded yeah. In layman's terms. So it's all really interesting. I thought it was kind of funny that she was talking about what color eggs were, and the article is posted pretty close to Easter.
1: Yeah. Dinosaurs wouldn't have had to do anything to their eggs for their hunts. Yeah. <laughs> Next, in LA, the LA Zoo is opening a new exhibit on April 15th with life sized animatronic dinosaurs. The exhibit is called Dinosaurs Unextinct at the LA Zoo, and people will be able to see 17 animatronic dinosaurs, some as tall as 22 feet and weighing 6,700 pounds.
0: Sounds like a real dinosaur.
1: Yeah, they're trying to make it as real as possible. <laughs> so some of the dinosaurs that you can see include T. rex, Carnotaurus, Diabloceratops, and Brachiosaurus, as well as a Stegosaurus. And visitors can actually control Stegosaurus to make it move. They also will have a fossil dig where you dig up fiberglass bones, and an augmented reality app where you can see dinosaurs move on your phone when you point your phone camera at the animatronic dinosaurs. Admission to this exhibit costs $5 per person, pretty reasonable, and the exhibit will run until October 31st. Now for those with sweet tooth, the Dala 100% Chocolate Cafe in Busan, South Korea serves a dessert called the Chocolate Dinosaur Egg. Apparently, quote, the shell is made of chocolate, there's chocolate ice cream inside, and it all rests on top of a bed of shaved chocolate ice, end quote. Plus, you can pour on chocolate syrup, just in case you didn't have enough chocolate. The cafe also gives you a hammer to crack open the egg, which is about the size of a T-Rex egg, probably. It's a very large dessert.
0: That's a ton of chocolate.
1: I don't think I could finish it all, but... I couldn't. I'm sure there's some people who could.
0: I'd need, like... Five
1: friends
0: (laughs) to get through all that chocolate.
1: Sounds like it'd be fun to eat, though. Yeah. And speaking of fun, Madsoft Games is releasing a game called Me and My Dinosaur to PlayStation 4 and PCs and Macs. It's a 2D puzzle platform game where you play as Hunter and his pet dinosaur Rex. They have 30 levels and lots of puzzles. The trailer I saw is just a teaser with a cartoon dinosaur egg cracking, so leaves you wanting more i guess Hmm. and according to an abbreviated description quote follow the thrilling adventures of hunter and rex in a family-friendly heartwarming single-player story campaign use dino treats to solve puzzles collect feed and train 28 adorable baby dinos in the dino daycare that alone i think got me
0: (laughs) that sounds very much like your type of game yep A lot like the uh, Jurassic Park Builder kind of thing where you're collecting and growing and all that kind of stuff.
1: Yeah, plus puzzles. Yeah, even better. So I'm looking forward to that game coming out. Next, just for fun, happened to stumble upon this answer that John Davis, who's a Marine Corps weapons instructor, he answered this question on Quora, could you kill a Tyrannosaurus Rex with a pistol? And he gives a quick two-step answer. Step one... Once eaten, aim for heart. Step two, wait and die the victor. (laughs) Mm. He also significantly added more to his answer in response to, I guess, people thinking his original answer was a joke that needed improvement. So he says, quote, The only real thing that people need to accept given a duel with a Tyrannosaurus Rex is that, positive emphasis, you will die. You will die soon. (laughs) He also adds another alternative, you could kill a baby T-Rex. That one you'd probably survive. And then he shares his answer for another question. Could a T-Rex have swallowed a human whole or mostly whole or would several bites have been involved? And his answer to that is basically you need to be a short person. He mentions Martin Kleba, an actor who is four foot one and he has warrior instincts. So he could probably punch T-Rex's throat while he's being swallowed and then deliver, quote, the fatal shot from within. End quote. It's a pretty epic Korra post. I'm that glad. It's pretty funny. Yeah, I like that he put so much thought into it.
0: Yeah. <laughs> but for the record, T-Rex wouldn't have swallowed you hold. He would have done that move where he crushes you with his huge teeth and then yes. waited for you to die and then
1: eat you. So just follow the first two <laughs> steps. Aim for the heart, wait, and die the victor.
0: <laughs> Maybe. If it punctures its skin.
1: Oh, that's true. The Australian Age of Dinosaurs Museum in Queensland, Australia, just received 10 life-size bronze cast dinosaurs as part of their stage three development plan, which includes making a new 6,000 square meter building. The dinosaurs were made by a bronze foundry in Texas, but they're all dinosaurs that came from Queensland originally. And this museum is owned by David Elliott and his wife, Judy, who opened the museum back in
0: 2009. Cool. Life-size bronze cast dinosaurs sounds awesome. And heavy.
1: Yes. (laughs) Must have taken a long time to get from Texas to Queensland, Australia.
0: Yeah. And expensive.
1: So next, for fans of the TV show Dinosaurs, I know we're fans, Yahoo recently posted an interview with Leif Tilden, who's the actor who wore the body of Robbie in the show Dinosaurs. Robbie is the the teenage teenage boy. boy. Yeah. It actually took three people to make Robbie. I think it took three people for each of those characters. Mm -hmm. Jason Willinger did Robbie's voice and puppeteer Steve Whitmire took care of the facial expressions. Leaf said that he never actually met Jason, (laughs) but he did work closely with Steve. That's pretty interesting. So for background, Leaf wore the Donatello suit built by Jim Henson Studios in the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles film and sequel. And he said that that helped him prepare for the role of Robbie because he learned how to move and work with other puppeteers and also to stay hydrated. Hmm. And he said it took about an hour to put on the Robbie suit Oof! and that shooting days were usually 12 hours long. Oh my. I know. (laughs) And even though he didn't voice Robbie, he memorized all the lines and he worked with Steve to quote, be completely in sync and connected emotionally.
0: Yeah, it plays pretty well. When you watch the show, you're not thinking like there's three people controlling this and the face is out of sync. Mm -hmm. It looks really good.
1: It's really smooth, yeah. So when he was asked what was a signature moment while making the show, he said, quote, one day stands out above the rest. When Robbie got to dance with Michael Jackson for an ABC promo, Michael Jackson was one of my heroes. They made a white glove for Robbie and I learned this whole routine. I remember seeing Michael in his trailer and he spoke with me and gave me a big hug. That to me was the most epic moment.
0: That's awesome. I love Michael Jackson. (laughs) Yeah, it must have been hot. I wasn't, I never really thought about it before, but most of the modern dinosaur replica type costumes Your legs are exposed and there's kind of an opening on the bottom of the suit. Mm -hmm. But in the dinosaur show, they were totally enclosed in the thing. Like their legs were enclosed and everything because they had the more upright posture. Mm -hmm. So it must have been super hot in there.
1: Yeah, for 12 hours.
0: Oh, man. That's rough.
1: (laughs) It's important to stay hydrated. Yeah. So in other media, this came out on CinemaBlend recently. Quote, a trailer for one of Paul Walker's earlier films has just surfaced and it involves having his brain transplanted into a robot dinosaur, end quote. (laughs) The movie is called Tammy and the T-Rex. And the premise is that Paul Walker's character is murdered and a scientist takes his brain and puts it into a robotic T-Rex. Watching the trailer, I kept thinking, this is a real movie? They actually (laughs) made it's not just a spoof, (laughs) a trailer spoof. It's a really campy trailer, as you can imagine, and cheesy. and makes no sense. But at the same time, it looks like it'd be fun to watch.
0: So is it a real movie then?
1: It is a real movie. Wow. This is back before Paul Walker was famous.
0: Maybe it'll have a resurgence now.
1: <laughs> Could be. I'm intrigued. I don't know how easy it is to find this movie.
0: Got to get a VHS player, probably. <laughs>
1: Maybe. And a quick side note away from movies. In the UK... A 13-meter or 43-foot diplodocus that's made of plants is making its way around London to help educate children on plant-based foods.
0: It's made of plants?
1: That is what the article says, yeah. Is it
0: like the Rose Parade where it's like a bunch of flowers arranged on a float or something?
1: No, it looks more like a topiary. Huh?
0: Huh? That's cool.
1: Yeah. So this diplodocus is named Florosaurus fitting, (laughs) and it's as long as a double-decker bus and weighs 750 kilograms or 1,650 pounds. It's meant to make kids want to eat more vegetables. Apparently, a recent study found that kids don't eat vegetables because they think they're boring.
0: That seems like kind of a stretch,
1: <laughs>
0: but I'm glad that this is the approach they took because they probably spent a lot of money on it.
1: Yes, I think so. So Florasaurus is at Westfield Stratford until April 4th, and then Florasaurus will move to Trafford Center, Manchester. So I guess out of London, April 7th to 10th.
0: Sounds awesome. I wish I had a 13 meter long dinosaur topiary in our yard. That would be awesome.
1: That would be. Would it make you want to eat more vegetables?
0: It would have nothing to do with that. Oh. That's why I think that's crazy.
1: (laughs) There might be more to it than we know.
0: They're going to stuff a bunch of like cucumbers in it or something and say like, you could eat a dinosaur cucumber.
1: I don't know. There's probably some (laughs) exhibit that goes with it.
0: It could be. That's funny.
1: So now we have a couple items that have to do with Jurassic World. Pretty exciting. The first one, Mashable Nature recut Jurassic Park 1, 2, and 3 and Jurassic World to make a trailer that reimagines the movie as a nature documentary. Mm. It follows the life of Little Tail, a raptor, from hatching out of the egg until becoming an adult. And the trailer is only a minute and a half, but it gives the Jurassic World franchise a really family-friendly vibe. It's totally different. I wish it was real. That's funny. (laughs) Yeah.
0: It's really fun to make those spoof trailers. I've done a couple of those. Just a little bit of editing and like a background music track can Mm -hmm. totally change. You can make like a comedy a horror or you can make, you know, a super violent movie look like a romantic comedy.
1: Yeah. Could you turn Tammy and the T-Rex into something Jurassic (laughs) Park-esque?
0: I'm sure. You just got to play like startling music and do like a reaction shot as soon as they show the dinosaur.
1: (laughs) So we also have some more updates on Jurassic World 2. According to Movie News Guide, filming will take place in London and there will be more interaction between dinosaurs and people. Quote, According to the plot of the story, the dinosaurs will be roaming free out of the theme parks that may bring the extinct animals nearer to everyone's home end quote Also quote the gang of dinosaurs may be used as military assets and dun, dun, yeah I know at least a few people seem upset about this already on the interwebs. This episode's brought to you by the Colorado Northwestern Community College where you can become a part of the scientific process.
0: You can go from July 6th to July 20th or from July 22nd to August
1: 5th. Head over to cncc.edu slash DinoDig. You'll get all of the details. Just make sure that you register online by May 31st. And again, that is cncc.edu slash DinoDig, D I N O D I G. BP added more than $70 billion
0: to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America.
1: Now on to the dinosaur of the day, Lielinosauri which was requested from David via Facebook. So, thanks David. Liellanasaurus means Liellan's lizard, and you may notice that the ending is -sora and not -sorus, like most dinosaur names, and the -sora ending is feminine, like in Maiasora. Apparently this dinosaur is often accidentally called Liellanasaurus in the media, and it's a bit of a fight the paleontologists who named the dinosaur. But anyway, Liellanasora was a small herbivorous ornithischian. It was described in 1989 and named after Lielin Rich, the daughter of the two paleontologists, Tom Rich and Patricia Vickers Rich, who found the fossils. And the fossils were found in Dinosaur Cove, Australia. Lielinusora lived in the Cretaceous, and the type species is Lielinusora amicographica, and the name amicographica means friend-writing, and that's in honor of the Friends of the Museum of Victoria and the National Geographic Society. So Tom and Patricia found two nearly complete skeletons and two fragmentary skulls and some teeth. And the holotype is of a juvenile. Lielinusora is a polar dinosaur that lived in the Antarctic Circle. At the time, Victoria, Australia was in the Antarctic Circle. It was much warmer in the Cretaceous than it is today, though there were long days and long nights depending on the time of year. Dinosaur Cove is a fossil bed that was named in 1980, and other dinosaurs found there were specimens of Atlas Copacosaurus and an unnamed dinosaur related to Allosaurus. In 2015, the land next to Dinosaur Cove was put up for sale. Greg Denny, an amateur dinosaur fossil hunter, his family has owned the property for decades, but he said someone else needs to take it to the next level and build a museum with a couple million dollars.
0: Yeah, just a couple million dollars.
1: Yeah, it would also take a lot of money to maintain it. That's true. So it'll be interesting to see if anyone does take it to the next level. Lee ellen was 12 years old when her parents named the dinosaur. In an open letter to Ranger Rick magazine, Lee ellen Rich wrote, quote, when I was two, I had a book called My Little Dinosaur. It was about a boy who found a live dinosaur in a cave near his house. I started wanting a dinosaur too. My dad worked with dinosaurs in a museum, so I asked him to get me one. You can just imagine how I felt when I first saw the fossils of my very own dinosaur. Thanks, mom and dad.
0: <laughs> That's great.
1: Yeah, it's a really great story. I wish
0: my parents were paleontologists.
1: (laughs) So her father at one point said, quote, I never promised her a living one, but she got one even though she had to wait for it. And she waited 10 years for that dinosaur.
0: That's true. A living one is probably what she
1: meant. Yes. Well, I'm...
0: You take what you can get.
1: She seemed happy. Yeah. (laughs) So Tom and Patricia, the paleontologist who named the dinosaur, they've been married and partners in science for 50 years, which is amazing. They also discovered another dinosaur, Timimus, named after their son Tim. So very fair.
0: Good thing they've discovered two. Otherwise the other one would always be better.
1: Yeah. Unless the other one doesn't care about dinosaurs. Oh, yeah. I guess. But still nice. Lealinosaur was about six and a half to 10 feet or two to three meters long and two feet or 60 centimeters tall with the hips. It was bipedal and it lived in temperatures between 21 and 50 degrees Fahrenheit. It grew quickly during its first three years, and then it grew more slowly afterwards. This is based on histological studies of femurs found in 1999 after the initial discovery. It may have grown quickly in its early years to more easily regulate its body temperature, and then once it was large enough, it didn't need to grow during tough times. It probably had skin and hair-like filaments. And Lealinosauria had a really long tail, more than 70 vertebrae in its tail, and some scientists think it was 75% of its body length. So possibly used the tail for display, but it was also a flexible tail that may have been fluffy and it could have wrapped it around its body for warmth. Weird. It has the proportionately longest tail of all known ornithischians. Liel may have burrowed since three fossilized burrows were found in Dinosaur Cove in the late 2000s, and that could have been another way to help it stay warm. And it may have lived for weeks or months, up to four months at a time in the dark. However, there was still some light from the aurora, snow reflecting light displays, and the moon, so that's something. It probably didn't hibernate, though we don't know for sure. Scientists used to think that because the growth rings in its bones changed in thickness, that it slowed its metabolism down in the winter to hibernate, but scientists have since found similar growth ring fluctuations in dinosaurs that lived in tropical areas who wouldn't have had to hibernate, so it's unclear whether or not Leolinosauri hibernated. The Leolinosauri had large eyes and large optic lobes, though that may be because the specimen found was a juvenile, so not necessarily large eyes to adapt to low light conditions. Hmm. It lived among many streams and rivers and forests of conifers and ginkgos, and it ate low-lying plants like ferns and horsetails. They may have also traveled in small herds. Laelanusora is on 5,000 collector coins as part of Perth Mint's Australian Age of Dinosaur series.
0: Oh yeah, we looked at those.
1: Yeah. And you can see Laelanusora in a dinosaur petting zoo in Australia. It features dinosaur puppets that kids can touch as they learn about dinosaurs. And from July 27th, 2015, until July of 2016, this year, there's an exhibition called Wildlife of Gondwana at the National Wool Museum in Geelong that shows a lot of polar dinosaurs, including Leelanisora, which is an exhibition based on the research of Tom and Patricia. Makes sense.
0: Cool. Where is the National Wool Museum? It's in Australia. Oh, Geelong is in Australia?
1: Yeah, it's in Victoria, Australia.
0: It's interesting that a wool museum is showing dinosaurs. Maybe because they're cold and they could have used wool. I don't know. Or maybe the museum has nothing to do with wool.
1: (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I've never been. So, Elinosaur has been described as a hypsilophodontid, an iguanodontian, and an ornithischian. It's unclear where in ornithopoda that it actually belongs. Ornithopods are ornithischians that started small and became larger and populous, especially in the Cretaceous. And ornithopoda means bird feet. This group had three-toed feet, the early ones had four toes, and beaks. They lived on all seven continents. They had stiff tails to help balance, and later ornithopods grazed on all fours and were semi-quadrupedal. They were great at chewing, too, like a modern cow.
0: And our fun fact for today comes from an idea from Chris via Facebook, and he mentioned that there are a lot of unusual things that you can deduce from fossil evidence, like how teeth can tell you about the diet of an animal. So it turns out that claws can also tell you a lot about a dinosaur. According to an article by Stefan Lottenschlager published in the Proceedings of the Royal Society titled Morphological and Functional Diversity in Therizinosaur Claws and the Implications for Theropod Claw Evolution, different therizinosaur's likely used claws for different purposes. The author looked at three different uses of a claw. Specifically, scratch digging, hook and pull, and piercing. All things that you wouldn't want to have happen to you. (laughs) (laughs) I guess scratch digging is just for the ground, but hook and pull sounds kind of nasty.
1: So does piercing.
0: Yeah. So he then modeled the claws and the stress that would be put on the claw while performing those activities. So, for instance, piercing, you model what it's like if you take the claw and you, you know poke it into something and what kind of stress that causes. The research basically showed that the shorter and wider claws were good for pretty much all three activities. They were pretty universal. But the longer, thinner claws probably couldn't have been used for scratch digging. So they wouldn't have been doing any digging. It would have been more grabbing things or stabbing things. This is just about therizinosaurus. So I'm sure you could apply the same techniques to other dinosaurs and see how the claws would respond to different pressures and forces and then get a good idea about the behavior of these animals and what their claw shape can tell us. So I think that's one interesting thing that you can find from fossils that you wouldn't think about at first. It's not really obvious.
1: Yeah, that's true. Cool. And that wraps up this episode of I Know Dino. Thanks for listening. And if you enjoy listening to our podcast and learning more about dinosaurs, then please support us on our Patreon page at patreon.com slash inodino. Until next time. Good day.